Chapter 23, Part 2 of the Story of My Life and Work. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andrew Kennedy. The Story of My Life and Work by Booker T. Washington. Looking Backward, Part 2. The constant work of appealing to individuals, speaking before churches, Sunday schools, etc., gradually served to make the institution known in most parts of the country. This was true to such an extent that in 1883 we received our first legacy of $500 through the will of Mr. Frederick Marquand of Southport, Connecticut. This was a most pleasant and gratifying surprise to us as we had no thought of anyone's remembering us in this way. Since then, however, hardly a year has passed that we have not been remembered by a legacy. The largest sum that we have received in this manner has been $30,000 through the will of Mr. Edward Austin of Boston. Mr. Austin's case is another one which shows, as I have already mentioned, that one should try to cultivate the habit of doing his duty to the full extent each day and not worry over results. I remember that the first time I saw Mr. Austin was about the year 1885, when the late Dr. W. I. Bowditch of Boston gave me a letter to him. At that time, Mr. Austin gave me his check for $50, but gave nothing between 1885 and 1896, and seemed to take little interest in the school. In fact, I had supposed that he had forgotten all about us. I tried on several occasions to get another audience with him, but did not succeed. In 1896, while in Boston, I was very much surprised to receive an invitation from Mr. Austin to call at his home. He was then very feeble, being over 90 years of age, but he told me that he had remembered us in his will, and that, as it would not be possible for him to live much longer, we would likely come into possession of the money within a reasonably short time, which proved to be true. On another occasion, I walked a long distance out into the country during a cold winter day to see a gentleman who lived near Stamford, Connecticut. More than once, I was rather inclined to blame myself for exposing my body to the cold on what might prove a fruitless journey. When I arrived at the gentleman's house rather late in the evening, he gave me, after considerable hesitation, a small check, but did not seem to take a great deal of interest in the school. The following year, however, I succeeded in obtaining from him a check for a somewhat larger amount. His interest, however, continued to grow from year to year, so that in 1891 he surprised us all by sending a check for $10,000. Up to that time this was the largest single gift in cash that the institution had ever received, and my readers can well imagine that the receipt of this large sum caused a day of general rejoicing on the grounds of Tuskegee. I have referred already to the gift of $400 from a friend who helped us when we were in an embarrassing position. I might add that the following year this same friend sent us a check for 
and since that time she and her sister have given regularly to us three thousand dollars each year these two friends have done as much if not more to keep the institution on a firm footing than anyone else that i know of i have had in my eighteen years of experience in collecting money for the tuskegee institute some very interesting episodes on the whole collecting money is hard disagreeable wearing work but there are some compensations that come from it in the first place it brings one into contact with some of the best people in the world as well as some of the meanest and most narrow ones very often when i have been in the north seeking money i have found myself completely without cash i remember one time while in providence rhode island that when i had spent all the money i had and was still without breakfast when in crossing the streets i found twenty-five cents near the sidewalk with this i bought my breakfast and with the added strength and courage which the breakfast gave me i went in quest of donations for tuskegee and was soon rewarded by several large gifts as an example of the way in which i have used my time from year to year there have been many occasions when i have slept in three different beds in one night while traveling through different portions of the country i give here a portion of a schedule which i followed on a recent lecture tour in the west this will enable my readers to judge whether or not to speak from night to night is the easy job that many people take it to be i spoke at mount vernon iowa january nineteen nineteen hundred eight p m then took the eleven o'clock train for cedar rapids where i arrived in about twenty-five minutes laid over in cedar rapids until three fifteen o'clock a m then took the burlington cedar rapids and northern railway for columbus junction where i arrived about five o'clock in the morning remaining in columbus junction until about eight o'clock when i took the chicago rock island and pacific railway for centerville iowa where i arrived at twelve thirty seven january twentieth much fatigued and worn out from the long journey over three different railroads at eight o'clock i again spoke and at twelve eighteen a m again took the train for chicago which i was billed to speak twice the same day and on the following morning i took the train for a long journey westward finally ending in denver and in returning stopped off at omaha and other places during eighteen ninety two i was asked by rev lyman abbott d d editor of the outlook to write an article for his paper which would let the country know the exact condition and needs of the negro ministry in the south in this article i told as fully and frankly as i could just what the condition of the ministry was mentally morally and religiously a very large proportion of the colored ministers throughout the country became greatly incensed at what i said feeling that i had injured the negro ministry very materially by my plain language for almost a year after this article was written scarcely a negro conference or association assembled in any part of the country that did not proceed to pass resolutions condemning me and the article which i had written this went on for some time but i was determined not to 
in any way yield the position which I had taken, for the reason that I knew that I was right, and had spoken the truth. At the time when the discussion and condemnation of myself were at the highest pitch, the late Bishop D. A. Payne of the A.M.E. Church wrote a letter endorsing all the statements which I had made, and adding on his own account that I had not told the whole truth. This, of course, added fresh fuel to the flames, and the bishop for several months came in for his share of condemnation. At the present time, after the lapse of eight years, I feel that the institution at Tuskegee and myself personally have no warmer friends than we have in the Negro ministers. Almost without exception, at the present time they acknowledge that the article which I wrote has done the whole body of ministers a great deal of good, that bishops and other church officers were made to realize the importance of not only purifying the ministry as far as possible, but demanding a higher standard in the pulpit, so far as mental education was concerned. I scarcely ever go anywhere without receiving the thanks of ministers for my plain talk. They feel that they are greatly indebted to me for much of the improvement that has taken place within recent years. Of course, when it is considered that at the time I wrote this article, a very small proportion of the colored ministers had had an opportunity to secure a systematic training that would give them mental strength and moral and religious stamina, it could not have been expected that any large proportion would have been fitted in the highest degree for the office of ministers. The improvement at the present time is constantly going on, and within a few years I believe that the Negro Church is going to be quite a different thing from what it had had the reputation of being in the past. At all times, during the discussion and condemnation of myself, there were not wanting strong and prominent persons in different parts of the country among our own race who stood valiantly and bravely by the position which I had taken. Among them, as leader, was Mr. T. Thomas Fortune, the editor of the New York Age. Mr. Fortune, in this matter, as in all other matters where he has considered my position the correct one, has defended and supported me without regard to his personal popularity or unpopularity. While he and I differ and have differed on many important public questions, we have never allowed our differences to mar our personal friendship. In all matters pertaining to the welfare of our race in the South, I have always consulted him most freely and frankly. For example, in the preparation of the open letter to the Louisiana State Constitutional Convention, Mr. Fortune and myself sat up nearly one whole night at Tuskegee preparing this letter. I have seldom ever given any public utterances to the country that have not had his criticism and approval. His help and friendship to me in many directions have been most potent in enabling me to accomplish whatever I have been able to do. In the same class with Mr. Fortune, I would put my private secretary, Mr. Emmett J. Scott, who, for a number of years, has been in the closest and most helpful relations to me 
in all my work. Without his constant and painstaking care, it would be impossible for me to perform even a very small part of the labor that I now do. Mr. Scott understands so thoroughly my motives, plans, and ambitions that he puts himself into my own position as nearly as it is possible for one individual to put himself into the place of another, and in this way makes himself invaluable not only to me personally, but to the institution. Such a man as Mr. Scott I have found exceedingly rare. Only once or twice in a lifetime are such people discovered. There is only one way for an individual to collect money for a worthy institution, as there is only one way for him to succeed in any line of work, and that is to make up his mind to do his duty to the fullest extent and let results take care of themselves. In the earlier year of the institution, I called to see a rich gentleman in New York who did not even ask me to take a seat, but in a gruff and cold manner handed me two dollars, as if to say, I give you this to get rid of you. Since that time, the same individual has given to Tuskegee as much as $10,000 in cash at one time. In other cases where I found it impossible to secure an audience, in the early days of this work, I have since been sent for by these same individuals and asked to accept money for the institution. In many cases, I have gone to individuals and presented our cause only to receive an insult or the coldest and most discouraging reception. Perhaps the next individual on whom I called would politely and earnestly thank me for calling and giving him an opportunity to make a gift to Tuskegee. During the early struggles of our work, in many instances I went to ministers in the North to secure opportunities to speak in their churches, but received no for my answer. Often, where I have received such answers, I have since received letters from these same ministers urging that I would deliver lectures in their churches, and naming large sums of money as compensation for my lectures. The institution has now reached a point where it conducts all of its affairs on a more strictly cash basis than in its earlier years. In fact, the general policy of the school at present is to undertake no enterprise in the way of improvements until it has the money in hand for such improvements. This policy could not be carried out very well in the early years of the school, when we were so hard-pressed for buildings. One thing which I have always thought has helped us a great deal is that we have always made it a point to have the strictest and most approved system of bookkeeping in connection with all of our financial transactions. Our books have been at all times open to the inspection of the public. In accounting for our income and expenditures, Mr. Logan, our treasurer, from the first has been of the highest service to the institution. We have never allowed any carelessness in the matter of bookkeeping. I have often been asked by young men how they can succeed in this or that direction. My advice to them is to make up their minds carefully 
in the first place as to what they want to do and then persistently devote themselves to accomplishing that end, letting nothing discourage them. If I may be allowed a little pardonable pride in connection with this statement, I would add to show how mistaken that secretary was who attempted to discourage me by telling me that I would not secure enough funds to pay my traveling expenses, that since the institution at Tuskegee was started, I have collected myself or been instrumental in causing others to help me secure, all told, fully one million dollars for the permanent plant, endowment, and the annual expenses of Tuskegee. Were I to attempt to give an account of all the ways and means by which individuals have tried to discourage me since I began at Tuskegee, this little book would contain little else than that. I have always found it easy to find people who could tell me how a thing could not be accomplished, but very hard to find those who could tell me how a thing could be accomplished. In my opinion, the world is much more interested in finding people who know how to accomplish something than those who merely explain why it is impossible to accomplish certain results. I have been asked many times how I have succeeded in this thing or in that thing. In almost every case I replied that it has required constant, hard, conscientious work. I consider that there is no permanent success possible without hard and severe effort, coupled with the highest and most praiseworthy aims. Luck as I have experienced it is only another name for hard work. Almost any individual can succeed in any legitimate enterprise that he sets his heart upon if he is willing to pay the price, but the price in most cases is being willing to toil when others are resting, being willing to work while others are sleeping, being willing to put forth the severest effort when there is no one to see or applaud. It is comparatively easy to find people who are willing to work when the world is looking on and ready to give applause, but very hard to find those who are willing to work in the corner or at midnight when there is no watchful eye or anyone to give applause. I end this volume as I began with an apology for writing it. It is always highly distasteful to me to speak about myself, and in writing what I have, I have attempted, in a small degree at least, to subordinate my own personal feelings with a view to giving the public as much information as possible. I hope that some permanent good will result from my effort. End of chapter 23 End of the story of my life and work by Booker T. Washington